Welcome back to the bag drop, untold stories in golf. Professor, top of the morning to you. I am very excited for today's show. I am so ready to just get there and do it. I woke up 6 a.m., jumped straight out of bed, just, yeah. We got a big guest. We, we got a big guest, Jay Billis. You know, in my prep for Jay Billis, I didn't realize something. He was the assistant coach of my favorite basketball team of all time. The, basically, the 90 to 92 Duke Blue Devils were why I was obsessed with basketball. Grant so, Hill specifically, but I love this team, Kevin. So this is a big deal to have Jay on today. Was that Bobby Hurley era? Did Jay Williams yeah, you're talking, after that? Jay Williams after, after absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he was after that. He was after that. No, this is like Bobby Hurley, Christian Leitner, Grant Hill, Thomas Hill, Bill McCaffrey. Uh, I think Cherokee Parks was a oh, freshman sure. on those guys. Yeah, uh, it was, I, I, they just were were fun to watch. And my whole family rooted for UNC. So I was always kind of the uh, the black sheep trying to, you know, be be counter to everyone else. But this is, this is going to be great. Jay Billis, great, great booking today. I'm looking forward to it. Do you got any factoids before we get to our interview with Jay? Yeah, I'm going to keep it quick and efficient, I hope, but I think entirely relevant to Jay. Jay Billis has read a book on toughness, and I think it's a good read for anyone, lessons learned through Coach K and life in general. Um, and it's related to emotional or affect, right? Like emotion and affect and like things that cause us stress. So I think one of the easiest ones to think about is when, let's say you're driving along at night and all of a sudden police lights come on in, in your mirror. What's your response? Uh, pull, pull on over. But I mean, what what happens the immediate time you, like the second you see oh, it, what happens physically? Stress, oh, I tighten up. I, I'm, I'm like, you know, checking what's in the car. <laughs> yeah, and so if you think about it, there's no reason you should just automatically get stressed because lights went off somewhere, right? That shouldn't shouldn't cause you stress. There's no reason that that should be an automatic response. Um, but what that helps show is like stress and um, stressful situations are often learned responses. These aren't things we were born with. They aren't things that just, it's inherent to our everyday life. No, they're learned responses. That's absolutely critical because it actually suggests that most of the things that cause us stress in life, we can reframe in different ways so they don't cause us stress. Because actually stress, the physiological response to stress is the same as excitement. Like what your body is producing chemically is almost identical, um, if not identical, depending on the situation. So all that is to say, like those things that cause you stress in life, they don't have to, right? You can think about them in different ways and respond to them in different ways. Um, so that's one of the cool things we've learned, especially in the last 10 to 15 years uh, of research in terms of psychology and, the, and the, also neuroscience and neurobiology. It's like when you hear uh, about a Tiger or any top golfer that experiences nerves or stress, they, they talk about how much similar it is to excitement. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of them reframe it as excitement. Like, man, I got this opportunity. Oh man, I'm feeling stressed. This is awesome. Like, here we go. That's that's a good that's a good one this morning. Well, uh, we'll get to our interview with Jay. First, thanks to our sponsor of the podcast this month, none other than New Club Golf Society. New Club is still accepting applications for 2023 season. The May membership promotion, Professor, this one is a doozy. You join with a friend, you get $200 off your wow. first year's membership. So that's that's big for this uh, the May. We're past April showers. We're into May flowers. Let's go play some golf. Join with a friend and you save $200 off your first year's membership. We got local tee times in our local chapters, tournaments throughout the year, full field events like our new club charity classic at Rivermont Golf Club, benefiting youth on course Georgia, and our Stinger, the annual member guest at Elgin Country Club in Chicago, plus 
we got limited frill events. I know you're a big fan of these, Doc. No food, no swag, just down and dirty, good old-fashioned golf competition, our monthly medals, our match play captain's matches, the Sunday morning four-ball matches. These have really caught on. And of course, we got our fixtures that are coming up. Registration for the Founders Cup at Big Cedar Lodge, Tigers Course, Payne Valley, Coor and Crenshaw, uh, Ozark National. That one's going to be huge. Don't miss it if you're a member. Registration opens uh, June 7th. And, and we got plenty in between there. We got Summer Medal at Landman and so much going on at New Club. Join the community. Hundreds of av- avid, passionate, bona fide golfers to play the beautiful game with. Apply at newclub.golf. Professor, let's get on with the show. Yeah, let's not waste any more time. Let's dive in. Jay Billis, welcome to the bag drop this morning. Well, thank you guys for having me. I'm honored to be with you. We're, we're honored to be with you too. I, I actually put, I want to get started because I put on this this morning, a little band in dunes action uh, because you and I, Jay, don't share many athletic achievements is my guess, right? But there is one that I'm, I'm very confident of, and that is the 2013 Summer solstice at Bandon Dunes. You were a couple groups behind me. We completed 72 holes in one day. I was really curious. What do you remember from that day? And have you done it since? I, I have not done it since. So what I remember, Gary Williams, uh, formerly of the Golf Channel, now with five clubs, um, is a great friend of mine. So we took a trip out there with a group of our friends. And Gary told me and a couple other guys, hey, I need you to play in an event with me on Friday. The other guys are going to play another course and we're going we're gonna to go out, but it's going to be early. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And, but he didn't tell us what it was and, uh, and found out it was a summer solstice. You know, you play all 72 holes before they, they built the sheep ranch. And, uh, and I had, I, as soon as I found out, I was like, there's no way I can do this. This is ridiculous because we had to walk every golf course and all that. And uh, not only did I finish it, but I played better each round and I had my best round on the last one on Band of Dunes. And uh, but we played 18 holes the day before. So we went 18, 72, 36, 36, 18, and then flew home. Wow. And when I got off the plane, my feet had swelled where I could barely walk back to the car. And I, I, I suffered for about three or four days where I was calling another, another friend of mine who happens to be a doctor that did the, did it with us. And I said, is this ever going to get better? Like, I'm like the elephant man here. I can't get to the bathroom. Like, what is, what is going on? And uh, after about the fourth day, I was back to normal. But it was, uh, it was a challenge. Uh, it was, it, I felt great the whole time I was there. Maybe it was all the alcohol. But when I got home after that long flight, when my feet swelled up, it was not pleasant. That, that, there's an uncle of mine, Jay, that's listening, who you just made feel very good, vindicated, because he had the same <laughs> leg issues afterwards, and we actually used you as motivation. I remember, he was a, he's a bit of a UNC fan, so I remember telling him that, I was like, you think Jay Billis is quitting on 52? Come on, man, let's pick it up. We got this. I, I felt great the whole time. It was really fun. The one mistake I made other than some of the wayward shots was uh, Gary changed his shoes after every round. And, you know, I didn't bring two pairs or three pairs of shoes, but, but I didn't, I, I wore the same shoes and socks, the whole 72. And that was a mistake. Uh, Cause you know, Matt, the ground is hard there. It's not like you're walking on, you know, soft turf. It, it's, it's hard ground. And uh, by the end of that, I mean, we were tired. 
but it was it was really fun. And it's a uh, uh, you know, it was kind of an account accomplishment. It's not like you climb Mount Everest or anything. We didn't have to set up any base camp after Pacific Dunes or anything or abandoned trails, but it was really, really fun. And uh, and I should have kept that hundred dollar bill they hand you at the end of it. Um, I should have framed that thing. I probably spent it that night on on alcohol. I think we all did. I remember that first beer being about as as tipsy as I remember after a single <laughs> beer after seven two holes. Uh, well, Jay, we we wanted to. There's so much we want to cover with you today, but starting with your your golf, uh, I I read a little bit about you know how you you started in the game. Um, is it true though that you really started taking it up more as a hobby while you were playing professionally? Is that correct? Yes. Um, I, I, my dad played when I was a little kid and I've got an older brother named Dave who's seven years older than I am. And my, I think my dad joined Rolling Hills Country Club in Southern California so that my brother could play. I mean, my dad played, you know, on weekends, but my brother was really, really good, played in college and, you know, it was a plus handicap, uh, uh, from the time he was 11 or 12 years old. But when I would go to my dad's country club, you know, that was back when juniors had to pick the range in order to play. And, and every time I turned around, somebody was telling me, don't do that. Don't walk here. Keep quiet. And, and I just felt like, you know, nobody tells me what to do when I'm playing baseball or basketball or other things. And, and, you know, I don't have to watch my language or, you know, all these rules. And I just didn't like it. And I didn't want to play. And, uh, and I got into it during the summertime. So when I was playing professionally overseas, I went back to Durham, North Carolina, uh, to Duke to, to work out. And, you know, you can't work out in basketball all day long. So guys would go play golf and gamble and all that. And, uh, and I got into it then. And, uh, and I, I fell in love with it. You know, I, all the bad shots you hit when you hit a good one, you thought, man, I want that feeling again. And, uh, and I just, I loved it. Now I can't get enough of it. And, and I still kick myself over not having played when I was a kid. I don't know that I'd be that much better, but I think I'd have more of a clue of, of what I was doing wrong or what was going on if I'd picked it up as a kid. So one of the things I love about you, Jay, one of the first things I do every morning, I open up Twitter. I mean, I shouldn't do that. We know we know that from a brain perspective, but I do that to really look in and see what lyric, you know, what young Jeezy lyric um, are you laying down? Now, I'm not going to ask you the typical question of why you do that. Other people can, you know, you've been interviewing that several times, but if there was one rap lyric that comes to mind that best summarizes your current golf game, do you have one on the spot? Oh, uh, it's it's a go-to. Summer, uh, summer's mine, winter too. Popping bottles in the club—that's what winners do. <laughs> so why that? Why that lyric? Break that down for us. Give us the uh, metaphorical uh, analogy there. It's it's a an uplifting. Maybe I can win. Thought uh, uh, you know, like a, a irrational exuberance. Um, cause I don't think, I, I think, I think I mentioned this to, to you and the other folks that were at the 2017 mid-am at Charlotte country club. You know, when, when I used to play basketball at lunch, when I was practicing law and, and I would go in there just to get a run in get a little sweat before I went back to the office. And, uh, and there were guys that were there every day who sucked. I mean, they were horrible basketball players and they never missed a day. I mean, they loved it. And I was totally confused by that. Like, how could anybody so bad at something love this this much? And I didn't understand it until I started playing golf. And, uh, and you know, like, I don't consider myself a good golfer. Like, I'm a single-digit handicap. I know that, that most people aren't and all that stuff. 
but I know the difference between a really good player and, and schleps like me that, that have a phony handicap at a country club. And, and, but, but I, I love it. And I'm around people who, who are just as bad as me or worse and we can't get enough of it. And, uh, and, and there's a, there's this feeling that you have that I'm going to figure this out. Like I'm going to get better at this. And the next shot is going to be like, I'm going to hit a good one when all evidence is to the contrary. And, uh, and I, I've never played a game like this. I've just never been involved in anything like golf. And I can't say that I love it more than basketball because I don't, but there's, there's, there's nothing else that comes close to basketball for me as golf does. Yeah, I, I, was, I was curious to, to tie those two together, Jay. When you're playing your best golf and when you were playing your best basketball, is, is, are the same things going on there? No, no. Uh, basketball, you can, uh, I feel like you can adjust. Like if you're not making shots, you can get closer to the basket. You can do different, get fouled. There are different ways for you to, to be good. Um, you can't do that in, in golf. Like you have to hit whatever shot. I mean, the one, the one thing I mentioned before that I wish I had played when I was a kid and it's not that I would have been that much better at golf. You know, I would hope I would be, but the, the one thing that, that I wish I, the reason, the one reason I wish I had played as a kid is it would have taught me how to positively deal with failure. Um, and I think I'm getting better with, with that, that instead of, you know, when I hit one sideways and I'm under a tree and, you know, I don't have a shot, I got to get out of it. You know, I, I used to beat myself up over putting myself there and you'd have all these negative thoughts instead of, no, just get out and, and make the best of it, you know, like get it back out in the fairway and hit it up and give yourself a chance to make par or whatever. Uh, I'm way better at that. Like my brother, my older brother, who's, who's a stick never gets mad playing golf. Like he, he, if he flares one out of bounds, which he doesn't do very often, you know, I would normally be expletives and, and upset and, and beating myself up and it doesn't bother him. And I asked him about it once and he said, well, the difference between me and you is I know I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> I thought that was pretty, <laughs> that was pretty good. Like I'm worried about doing it again. And he's like, okay, I made a bad swing. I'm not going to do that again. Is your pursuit of golf, Jay, are you goal-oriented at all with it, or do you just consume it because you love it and there's a passion for it? Uh, that's a good question. It, it's both. Um, I do have goals. Like, I play in different events that I'd like to perform better, uh, you know, kind of year after year, where I, you know, at first it's you don't want to make a fool out of yourself, and then, no, I can climb up and, and be better than this. Um, and then it's just the, the enjoyment of it. Um, like I love going to just hit golf balls and, uh, and putt. If I've only got an hour in a day, I'll go to the, I'll go to the club and I'll hit balls for a while. And, uh, you know, I work with, uh, with, uh, the pro at my club. Uh, I'm pretty religious about, about taking lessons and trying to improve and understand it. Um, and I, I did that actually during the pandemic when I had a lot more time, I was having a, a pretty bad lower back problem that really affected my ability to play. And I was thinking, I don't know how much longer I can play. And I, I really, I, I saw, uh, I went to this Titleist performance Institute and, and worked on my back and, and that got significantly better. Now, now I just have old man pain. I don't have real significant pain and, uh, it allowed me to swing again. And then we started over with my pro um, and it, it, it's been really fun 
um, one, getting better and feeling like you have a, a clue what you're doing and, and being able to self-diagnose. But um, I, I just figured, you know, if I'm going to pay a caddy to go out and play four hours of bad golf, why not pay my pro to make me better? So I just do that essentially during the pandemic. I did it once a week. I took a lesson once a week. And, uh, and now I'm probably once every two weeks, probably, or, or sometimes once a week, depending on time. And it's the best money I've ever spent. Um, uh, I, I, I love it. And um, I, I don't, maybe it's, it's part of, of just at my age, having a pursuit that I'm passionate about, that, that I'm willing to invest time in. Um, and then, you know, when you go out and play with your friends, I mean, yeah, I want to win the five bucks too. Um, that, but, but the goal part of it, you know, the events I play in, I want to perform better. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, clutching onto things. I have to win. It's not that it's just, you, you just, you just want to play well while you're, while you're out there and while you're enjoying the fellowship of golf, which is second to none. Um, it, it's all part of a bigger hole for me. And, uh, you know, I, I never thought I would, would be one of those guys. Like I'm at, I'm at my club all the time and, uh, whether I'm playing, hanging out, whatever that's, uh, uh, if I didn't intentionally drive over there, I think my car would just go there cause it's used to going there. Um, it, it's, it's that often. There's something about that never ending pursuit that exists in golf of, of improvement, right? That just. It's an impossible game to capture. I think Robert Hunter had some famous quote about that's what drives you to play golf is it's impossible to ever capture it. And it's irrational. Um, like there, there's nothing rational about it. And I have to I, when I'm with my friends and we're out with our wives and, and you know, I, I, I think this is probably true. If I didn't play golf, I'm not sure I'd have any friends. Um, yeah, all my friends, we, all we want to do is play golf and it's a great hang and, and it, it, you know, we're out there, uh, enjoying ourselves, but I'll get home and my wife will say, well, you know, how's, how's Jim? Uh, who, who'd you play with? Do I play with Jim? Oh, how's his wife? And I go, Jim's married. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) he's got a new driver though. And, uh, and he just played Shinnecock. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about golf all the time, but I have to check myself when we're out with our wives that we don't start talking about golf and they start, you know, rolling their eyes at us. Ke- Kevin and I know that well, we that side of the table just kind of drifts off into another universe of golf talk. Uh, the, the improvement side or, or competition side, I was thinking about you playing in a member guest for a club championship. And I'm thinking about the same guy playing for an NCAA title game. Is the pressure of are there are there commonalities between the pressure of those two? Whether it's you know making a putt on the last hole for a five dollar Nassau, winning your club championship, but then playing basketball at one of the highest levels, are there commonalities in the, in the pressure that happens in, in competition like that? Not to me. Um, I never like you feel pressure playing basketball uh, in different events, and that that it, there's I'm sure it's similar for a tour player when a tour player is playing in something that that doesn't matter quite as much or playing in a major or playing in the Ryder cup. I can, I can certainly imagine that and relate to it on a low level, but uh, you know, in basketball, you felt like you knew what you were doing. And I'm not sure that I feel that way when I'm playing golf, especially when you play in tournaments, when there are spectators, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've been invited uh, several times to the American century championship out in Lake Tahoe. And, uh, and I've never felt nerves like that. Um, it doesn't relate to basketball because you stand up there and you're going, you know, if I flare one here, I could kill somebody. 
<laughs> I never, never felt that in basketball. But, you know, when I played, it was funny, you know, when I played basketball in college, especially, you know, you, you when you're a kid, you're shooting out in your backyard or at your local gym and, and you might be by yourself or shooting free throws or whatever. And you're pretending you're playing in the, you know, this free throws for the NCAA championship. You know, this is a free throws in the final four. And then I got to the final four and I was shooting a free throw in, uh, in the final, in a final four game. And before I shot it, I was thinking about playing in my backyard, you know, like I've done this a thousand times and that was really weird. You know, like, like the, the, the mix of that, you know, you dreamed your whole life. And then when you're there, you're thinking about, you know, being in your backyard and, you know, golf, I guess you can do it the same way in golf, but, but there's not, there's not, there's not a, a comparison between playing a Nassau with your buddies and then getting in a tournament setting with spectators and all that, where every shot really counts. Um, that that's a different level of concentration. And the, it, you know, I, I was mentally after playing three rounds in that tournament, especially the first time I was mentally exhausted, mm-hmm. you know, kind of grinding over every shot and, and worried about consequence. Like I don't worry about consequences when I'm playing at my club. Uh, but when you're playing in one of those tournaments, you're like, geez, okay, if I hit this long, that's a problem. I can't put it left. You know, I, I got to be careful here. Uh, it, it's a totally different deal. Like the, the course management and managing your bad shots. It's a, it's a really interesting process and one that I've never experienced before, but the more I do it, the more I'm craving it. And that's honestly one of the reasons that that one tournament, the American century is one of the reasons I practice so much is I want to. I want to perform better there. And, uh, and I think the better I perform, the more I enjoy it. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, gave, uh, Chris Wilson, actually gave me really good advice on exactly that, that topic of the consequences. And the one thing he always told me to do, because I'm definitely, I'm way too mental on the golf course, and that's definitely held me back in terms of reaching whatever my capable ceiling would be. Um, he's like, just laugh at yourself. He's like, you're thinking about something that hasn't even happened. Like, you haven't hit over the over the green or you haven't hit in the water yet and you're stressing about that. Like how ridiculous is it for the brain to do that to you that it's getting stressed about something and it hasn't even happened. So I literally do that in the golf course. And that 2018 year when I made it to the mid-am, that was one of my biggest tool sets was just an audible laugh. And that just calmed me out for whatever reason. Yeah, there, there are two things, Kevin, that I do uh, or at least try to do. One, one Steve Kerr, uh, kind of uh, the coach of the Gold State Warriors kind of, uh, brought this up to me and it's, it's the idea of accepting, you have to accept the consequences of, of missing. Mm-hmm. And, and he had said that, that when he really kind of freed himself up as an NBA player, you know, you step over a putt or over a shot, you know, you may miss like whatever the putt is five footer, whatever uh, I may miss this, but you have to step up to it thinking about making it, but willing to accept the consequences of missing. And it's not that big of a deal. Um, I may miss, but I'm not afraid to miss. And that's hard to do in golf. I think it's really hard to do. But the other is something that Coach K used to say all the time, and it was next play. Like, whatever happens, next play. And you can't take yourself out of making the next play by worrying about what just happened. Positive or negative, it's over. And, and you have to have a next play mentality. And I, I've, I've, I say that to myself all the time, but especially on a golf course, um, you know, next play. Uh, and you, when people say staying in the moment, um, that that's really just about concentration. You know, you, you can't do anything about the next hole. Now you can't do anything about the shot you just hit. If I'm under, you know, I put myself under a tree, it's the next shot. Okay. What's the right shot here and concentrate on that shot. 
Um, it's hard to do, but, but when I've played with tour caliber players, you know, guys like you, mid-am players, whatever guys that can really play, I'm, I'm amazed that, that they can walk around with us and laugh and joke and be one of the guys. But when it's time to, to take their shot for that fifth, you know, 30 seconds that they're preparing to take the shot and completing it, they're locked into that. And, uh, that sort of, you know, kind of start stop thing, um, Curtis Strange, I, I consulted him when I wrote a book several years ago, and he asked me something I'd never even thought about. He goes, all right, how, you're, you're out playing a, a round, uh, par 72, and how long, how long do you think it takes you to get from your setup uh, to hit the shot and get to your finish position? How, how much time in the course of a round? And I go, well, I don't know, five minutes. And I can't remember the number, but he said, no, it's, it's about three minutes. And, uh, and he, he goes and in a five hour round, he says three minutes out of a five, a five hour round. He goes, that's a lot of time you have to F yourself up if you allow it. And, and I was like, man, that's pretty profound. You know, that, that, that you have to, you have to think, you know, kind of lock in and concentrate in, in that moment. And then the rest of it really doesn't matter. I was thinking about this exact same thing, Jay, watching the Masters recently, where everyone was outraged about, you know, Rory taking uh, an interview on the ninth hole during competitive play. And, and the more I thought about it, I said, well, you clearly aren't understanding how these guys ap actually operate. They're talking with their caddies about where they're eating that night or what's going on at home. And then when they get into that moment is where they, they zone in, just as you said. I think that was one of my biggest competitive errors uh, as a, as an amateur golfer was trying to focus for five hours. Nobody can focus for five hours. That's exhausting. It'll wear you out. It'll wear you out. And then it's, uh, you know, whether it's basketball, I think it, th this is similar in basketball and golf, like tension is the enemy of, of your performance. And, you know, when you're, you know, I can, I can feel it. It's hard to stop it. But when I'm kind of loose and my hands are loose and I just hit better shots, and when I'm mm -hmm. gripping the club, like let, take a death grip on it, it ain't going to go well. And, and, uh, and, you know, having that releasing tension, but, but like kind of letting things go in between shots and, and relaxing a little bit and trying to relax your mind. Um, that's the hard part for me. Uh, cause you, you're trying, you're trying to grind it out, but at the same time, like you gotta be relaxed in it. And it's a hard balance to strike for, for guys like me that are just kind of your normal Joe golfer. Yeah, it's a whole no single shot matters that much and just always keeping that perspective. Um, Jay, you're super passionate about college athletics and the topic of amateurism and, and all the debate going around there. And we're going to dive into some of the specific elements of that. But I want to start at a real general level because that passion comes through so clearly every time you speak on it. Uh, where does that passion, passion come from? Like why is such a strong passion for collegiate sports and especially around the idea of amateurism and pay for play in that? Well, it, it came from when I was in college. So when I was playing at Duke, uh, I was um, appointed to an NCAA committee as a, an athlete representative. It's called the NCAA Long Range Planning Committee. And one of our administrators uh, nominated me to be on it. And I replaced a football player from Alabama who had aged out named Walter Lewis, a quarterback there. And when I got on the committee, you know, I, I started diving into NCAA policy and learning how the system worked and, and the rules and where they came from and what the point was. And whenever I brought up concerns and meetings that I had, whether it was a transfer rule, because that was a big deal to me. I, I almost went to the University of Iowa to play for Lute Olson 
And, uh, and chose Coach K, and I'm really glad I did. But had I gone to Iowa, Lute Olson went to Arizona the next year. And so I would have been left with a decision, do I follow Coach Olson to Arizona, which I would have. Uh, I would have had to sit out a year. And I'm like, that's not right. There, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. But every time I brought something up, and the amateurism piece was part of it, I didn't think it was fair that if I took a hamburger from somebody, I was ineligible. That made no sense to me. Uh, I got shot down and, uh, and, you know, it was fine. I got it. But back then I was, um, I was a member of a committee and I was part of the NCAA machine or at least felt I was. So if I disagreed with policy, I kept it to myself publicly. But when I got with ESPN, it, it wasn't my job to do that anymore. It was my job to cover the sport. And so I said what I, what I thought and I study it, um, you know, it's funny, like how it relates to golf, like the amateurism piece I never understood. And uh, it, like, I don't believe that that love of the game has anything to do with money, because I think that people that are paid for what they do have tremendous love for the game. Uh, and it's not like amateurs love it more. Amateurism doesn't do anything for the athlete, doesn't make them a better athlete, a better person. Uh, nothing. And uh, uh, it's just an old vestige from you know, when the social elites and the moneyed elites wanted to eliminate the common man from competition. That's what amateurism really is. The common man can't play. And, uh, and so the elites would get to win um, and they could close people out. It was exclusionary and, and really was un under the NCAA. But so when, when golf decided, you know, that they needed to sort of follow suit, and I think there was a proposal, if not a rule at the time, uh, maybe PGA of America. I'm not sure whether it's PGA of America or U USGA, where if, if I won my, you know, member member or something, and there's a $500 shop credit, they could just give you $500 and it wouldn't affect your amateur status. And I had said on a, uh, maybe a podcast or to a, in an article that I thought that was a good thing. Like I thought it was great. And I had a bunch of PGA pros reach out to me, club pros saying, Hey, what are you doing? Like, this is not a good thing. Like that money flows through our shop. And, and I didn't really think about that. And I was respectful of it. But, but after thinking about it, I go, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're not saying it's wrong for the amateur to get that money. You're saying that's your money. And, and that's different. Um, if, if there's some sort of argument that, hey, it, it is detrimental and wrong for an amateur to, to take any compensation at all. Okay, let's talk about that. But but it seems like we were arguing over whose money is this now? This is our money. You know, they can get the they can get the merchandise, but that money's got to flow through us. We need that money. Uh, I didn't like that one. That one didn't move me at all. Um, you know, I, I think hey, if, if if you're good enough to generate revenue from it, you're good enough to share in the revenue. And uh, and I, I I feel that way in golf. I feel that way in basketball. Anything. Um, People are making money off this, and there's no reason that there should be a unilateral rule that closes out a certain segment of the population from from sharing in that 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 gain. The yeah, the unilateral rule blows my mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay my cards on the table. To start with, I agree with your I'd say 99% of your perspective. You know, you always disagree on some small nuance points mm -hmm. when you get down into it. So I'm gonna start there just to put my cards on the table, but. I do want to take this opportunity since you're so knowledgeable on to, I don't know if the right words, push you or just bring up other ideas. So let's start with like, have you heard arguments that you consider compelling for not paying collegiate athletes, amateurs, whatever you want to call them? Like, are there any sort of, any aspect of those arguments that you do consider appealing that have to be considered and, and addressed? 
Yeah, choice. You know, so if if all of these schools, let's take just just keep it in the NCAA sphere. All, all of these schools are market competitors against one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're market competitors for talent. They're market competitors for media rights dollars. You name it. Um, and and so they can make their own decisions. Like if McDonald's wants to raise their prices, it doesn't mean everybody else has to do with it or they want to lower their prices, whatever. They want to pay their their workers double the 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 industry uh, average. Go ahead. Do whatever you want. Um, so if if school A, let's take Duke, for example, because I went there. If Duke says, you know what, that's not who we are. So we're not going to pay our athletes and we're only going to pay our coaches the same as we pay our professors. Go ahead. You know, make that decision on your own and then see how it works out for you in the marketplace. I think if they pay their coaches the same as the professors, that's going to close out their obtaining a lot of, you know, a lot of talent that they want. Same thing with players. The, the professor's gonna, in favor of that, by the way, here. I'm, I'm in favor of paying the professors as much as the coaches. <laughs> That'd be great, too. And, the, and you know what? Any school can do that if they want to. There's no restriction on what they can pay their professors or their presidents. Ban- they go bankrupt very quickly, I'm sure. They might, but 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 they can do it if they want to. Um, and, and so I, I say let the let the market decide and let in each individual. Like nobody tells them, hey, you know, none of you can have hospitals or or there's a limit on what you can pay your coaches or here's what you could spend at facilities. There's no spending cap or limit on anything except athletes. And in a multi-billion dollar industry, I personally find that to be wrong to the point of being immoral. Uh, and, and, you know, we've seen that just with NIL, which is a very small piece of what the, the players are actually worth in college sports, that everything the NCAA told us was a lie that they said it was going to affect uh, fan interest negatively. It was going to affect women negatively. Sports were going to be dropped left and right. None of that was true. And, and I haven't seen one thing that tells me that, that the dynamics are different, that there are fights in the locker room, that players don't love each other anymore because money has gotten in there. Um, the only thing is it's more difficult for coaches now because money is a part of it. Uh, so they have to they have to factor different things in and decisions for players. Now they're asking, how much can I make uh, when before, you know, like if you're a, a non-athlete student, money is an issue for non-athlete students. You know, they, they go, how much scholarship money can I get? How much does this school cost? Um, can I make money if I get a job? If I write a book, I can make as much as I want, whether I'm on scholarship or not. You know, they have the same issues. It's not as many of them because, they, you know, they're not all of them in an industry that's making billions of dollars for the universities. But but it's very much the same. Like money's a factor now for players when it wasn't allowed to be before. And some people are having a hard time wrapping their heads around that. But but not one game has been canceled. Not one check has has failed to clear. The business is rolling right ahead and and it's not going to stop. Yeah, I, I, I've been uh, trying to pay attention, Jay, and and I think initially I may have had a traditionalist, uh, you know, amateur love of amateurism kind of mindset as this all, you know, a few years ago started rolling out, and and trying to start to pay attention and realizing that a lot of that stuff didn't play out the way that I had kind of thought it might, and I'm I'm wondering what you tell the folks that you know, maybe thought as I did where the, the rich teams or the, you know, biggest conferences, the biggest teams are, are just going to widen the gap. 
that they're the ones that are just going to benefit the most from this. I mean, what are some instances of, of that not playing out and where you see it with smaller programs that can actually, you know, compete on the same level or maybe even higher because of NIL? They're all anecdotal right now, Matt. Like it's not, there's not enough data to be able to make any conclusions in my view, but, but for people that say, well, the rich are just going to get richer. We had Florida Atlantic in the final four this year. And, you know, last year, and then people are saying, now it's wide open. Anybody can, well, last year we had Duke, North Carolina, uh, Kansas, and Villanova. And it was a blue blood final, final four. I don't think you really know necessarily what's going to happen year to year. They're just, you know, single data points. We'll find out what the trend is when we get some more data. But, you know, this last year, you know, Miami got a lot of, uh, in basketball, got a lot of publicity before the season about NIL. You know, they had signed a player uh, reportedly for 400000 a year from Kansas State. And they're saying, oh, boy, Isaiah Wong, one of their players, he wants more. It's causing all kinds of problems. And, you know, it worked out just fine. They went to the Final Four. They'd never been there before. And Florida Atlantic does it. Um, you know, it, it's just a hard, hard thing to, to figure out. But from an, an economist standpoint, you know, to me, it, it's pretty simple to figure out. You know, take Kansas, for example, Kansas and Wichita State. Wichita State is not going to get any of the players that Kansas recruited in the past. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to be in that game. But now Wichita State can offer Kansas's fourth best recruit um, their top recruit compensation. And, and so that, that makes somebody think, you know, I can be the top guy and the top earner at Wichita State where I'm the fourth or fifth here at, at Kansas. That's what's going to spread talent around. So it seems to me just in the early returns and what I've seen that talent is going to be spread around more is, and that's what everybody says they want. But yet we have a final four this last year where we don't have the name brands in it. And it was one of the lowest rated we've had. So do people really want that? Um, I don't know. It's kind of like the tiger effect in, in golf. You know, is it better to have Tiger in a dominant position? I mean, he's older now, but but when he was really rolling, is it better to have him in a dominant position? Uh, or is it better when different people are winning all the time? And and it it looked like from the, the money coming in that it was better to have Tiger dominant. But, um, you know, those are things you can't control. Yeah, that's, that touches on one of the subjects I'm very passionate about, Jay, in terms of the balance of call it ethos or soul of a sport and then the economy of a sport that often those push out against, against each other, right? That people from a ethos standpoint love parody, right? That's like, oh, the, the, the soul of any great sport is parody. But then when it comes down to the economy of a sport, often it's counter to that, right? The economy of a sport, when the Yankees are winning and they're winning a lot, like people, even people that hate the Yankees tune in to watch them or Duke or North Carolina, right? Like people tune in for those, those blue bloods across sports. And I just love that tension that exists in terms of, do we want to make the most money or do we want to preserve certain aspects of a sport? And I think you can do both. Um, you know, the, the, those traditional brands, whether it's the Yankees or, or North Carolina and Indiana, Duke, whatever, Kentucky, uh, the markets that they have, they generate a lot of, a lot of fan interest. Uh, and I don't think any of those places are going to go away. Um, they have some advantages in, in both, both money and tradition, you know, Alabama football, whatever. But I don't think football is college football is suffering from, you know, the, their, their system where, where the big shots seem to have it locked up. 
You know, I, I can't say that they do, but this last year TCU made it in. Um, you know, and I think when we see when 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 college football goes to twelve, and I'm not a football expert, I, I love football, but I'm not a football expert. But my my sense is that when they go to twelve, we're going to see some upsets. And you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. You know, when you pick four teams, or back in the day during the BCS when they picked the final two. You know, everybody thought, well, we know these are the two best teams. No, you don't. You don't know that. And you open it up, and we're going to see some upsets, and we're going to see some things happen that are going to change our viewpoint uh, because it happens in basketball. You know, if we, if we picked the Final Four, we'd think we knew who the best teams were, uh, and we wouldn't have Florida Atlantics. And uh, so I don't know the right way to do it. I'm not sure a 68-team tournament is the right way to pick a champion. But um, but it's a hell of a hell of an event. Yeah, it's a very fun way to pick a champion, right? Might not say, oh, that's the best team of the year from a just like holistic on the full year of the run. But man, that NCAA tournament is a blast. And, quick- and it always is fun that my grandma gets more right than Jay Billis some years, you know, which is always fun, Jay. Always it's fun. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. But, you know, you, you look at any other sport and it's really the same. I mean, you know, NFL playoffs, what are there, 16 teams and – and everybody thinks they know, and and all the experts are wrong. It's competition. Um, you know, I'm I'm part of this five clubs organization. We pick, we got to pick the winner of the Zurich. You know, last week at Harbortown, you know, I picked Cantlay, and uh, he finished what a shot out of the playoff. And uh, like, who knows? Like, you don't know what's going to happen in these things. You make a guess, and it's fun as hell. But but that's one of the great things about sports is you you know we think we know, but we don't know. It's great. Uh, on the topic of, of not knowing and, and with the NIL stuff, uh, if you could step in a little crystal ball action, Jay, and, and go five, 10 years down the road for the NCAA, what do you think it looks like? I think it looks largely the same as far as the structure, because there's a lot of value in the current structure. But I think what we're going to see, the, the business is going to shift towards signing players to contracts because it's cleaner, easier, and smarter. Um, the NCAA, in my view right now, is caught in the middle of the old system and what's coming. And so they they kind of went to this middle ground of NIL, which they feel like they can't control. And uh, and but if they sign players to contracts, there'll they'll be some some control there. Uh, you know, they can they can deal with the NIL because you sign a player to a contract, you can bargain for their NIL rights. You can tell them, here's what you can do and here's what you can't, just like they do with coaches. You know, it's not like when when John Shire signed his contract with Duke, he said, all right, I'm going to wear whatever shoe I want. You know, they said, no, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars and here's what you're allowed to do as part of your employment agreement. And it'll be the same whether it's a personal services contract or they decide to do full employment. It's really not that difficult. I mean, Duke, for as an example, has thirty thousand employees. It's not it's not a stretch for them to to have five hundred more uh, to cover all their athletes. It's not that big of a deal. And some of them may be scholarship only. Some of them may be less than that. And some of them may be scholarship plus five hundred thousand a year uh, for a three year deal or whatever. Um, it, it's really pretty simple. You know, the, the, this, this system that we have in America, you know, this capitalist system seems to work pretty well for everyone else. There's no reason it wouldn't work for athletes. So do you see those contracts then being even negotiated all the way down to the number of years that there would be? So I'm thinking of now the transfer portal and everything that goes around transferring that, okay, the players, you know, players with more power might negotiate one-year contracts because they're like, oh, I'm a top-level player. But if I'm a 
you know, role player or whatever, then the school might have more power and say, well, you can come here, but I want you on a four-year contract. Do you see it playing out like that or? I do. I do. Uh, multi-year contracts, uh, like you're saying, if you want to sign a one-year contract uh, with an option, whatever, you can do all kinds of things. There are, and this may depend on state law, uh, whether you could have a non-compete, but at the same time, uh, you know, you could, you could put a provision in the contract where you had a buyout, just like with a coach. We'll sign you to a three-year deal. If you decide after a year you want out, that's fine, but you're going to have to pay us X amount of dollars in order, in order to leave. Um, and, and that gives the school a little bit more control, a little bit more certainty uh, over their rosters. That's really one of the biggest issues now is, is you know, roster uncertainty. You know, they don't know who they're going to have from year to year because the players can leave. And the reason that a lot of times they wouldn't leave um, because they might be in a situation they weren't happy with, but they weren't willing to sit out a year in order to be able to play again. And that transfer restriction worked like a non-compete provision in an employment contract when they're not really employees. So uh, that restriction was it was making the NCAA look bad in court when they were fighting over money. And that's one of the biggest reasons they punted on that and allowed the athletes their freedom of movement uh, from school to school like any other student would have. And I don't know whether they regret it or not. I think the coaches do. But uh, but, you know, it seems to be. You know, it's going to stabilize. It's stabilizing now, but uh, I don't think the coaches like the fact that players now have agents. Um, they may be, you know, they're, they're sort of back, uh, not back room, but back channel discussions about, hey, you know, I've got a player who's, who's interested in, in transferring. Do you have a spot? You know, that kind of thing that's going on now. Uh, they don't feel like they have control over that, and I understand it. But you know, it's not that much different than it used to be. It's just there's not that transfer restriction. You know, there's a a, a point, Jay, that you made in, in one of your podcasts or articles I was reading on um, financial acumen of our players of of collegiate amateurs, and and this really hit home because very recently a former classmate of Kevin Kevin and I played golf at University of Akron, a basketball player who was a, a friend of mine smart guy, he got in some financial and, and accounting troubles, right? And I thought about how much uh, the university probably profited off of that that particular player. Uh, he was a standout player, as I said. And he, uh, you know, we were taking, a lot of dollars were spent on compliance and, and we were taking tests about compliance. We weren't taking tests about paying our taxes, about good, responsible financial management. And so I, that was a small point that I wasn't even considering in all this, that you, you have to trust people and empower people to figure things out. And that, that's an element of, of life that any student should have that opportunity to do. Why wouldn't you give it to uh, an athlete who will probably, need it in a big way if their career, you know, continues. Yeah. In anything they do. And so, you know, from my perspective, my seat, you know, when I graduated college, you know, I had four years of college where I, you know, we were doing some pretty high level things and generating revenue for the university, but we didn't handle any of our own. So I was 22 years old before I started handling my own money. And I had to learn it on the fly outside of that, that environment, the university environment. And, you know, when the players now have access to money and, and as you say, Matt, they have to pay taxes and, you know, there's accounting issues they have to deal with. They have to make decisions. Is this the right deal? This NIL deal, is this the right deal for me? Uh, is the contract where it needs to be? Uh, am I protected? Um, is this a brand I want to be associated with long term? 
you know, things like that, those are positives to me. And in that university environment, there are experts they can rely on that can help them with it. And, and I think that's nothing but a good thing. And I, I had a coach one time tell me, you know, what, what, what are we going to do now? Like we're given, you know, these kids now, they call them kids, which infantilizes them. But, hmm. you know, these kids have, have a bunch of, you know, now they're going to have all this money. They're just going to blow it. And I said, okay, so say they blow it. They're in the same position as they started. You know, so, so that they may blow it is a reason not to, for them to have zero. Like that, that doesn't make any sense to me mm-hmm. at all. And, uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, you know, there are, look, there are issues with this that are, are difficult. So a, a player is, is worth a lot of money in college. Let's take, you know, a top player and his family is, is leaning, leaning on him for money while he's in school. They, they want the money. And so, but I look at that, there are negatives to that and difficulties, but I also think there are positives to it that, you know, it took me a while as, as a, you know, when I got out of college to learn the value of saying no uh, to people. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there are lessons there of a player in, in college at a younger age, you know, 18 to 22, learning how to say no and how to manage those relationships and, and, and deal with that uh, when they, when they're, perhaps better supported when they're in college. Um, I, I see it as, as every negative that people bring up, uh, I think there are po- more positives associated with it, but that's just the way I look at it. No, I think that's a great point, Jay. It's so easy for people to focus on those negative outcomes rather than like, well, yeah, maybe for that one guy that blows all of it, there's five that now can support their family and like helps their younger son or younger brother go to college and get a degree and that sort of stuff. Well, um, Kevin, to that point, I'm sorry to interject on that, but no, to that no. point, so I had that same coach that mentioned to me one time, he said, well, you know, what are these play now look what's going to happen. Like these guys are going to have to deal, they're going to have to pay taxes. They're going to have to, they're going to have to do this. They're going to have to do that. They, they brought up all these things that, that are associated with, with money that, that the rest of us have to deal with. And, and I said, geez, you know, if, if players couldn't drive until now and the NCAA said, all right, you guys can drive. You know, you would say, what's going to happen now? You know, now they're going to have to get their car registered. They're going to have to keep their insurance current and their license current, and they're going to get tickets. They may get a DUI. Like, yeah, you're right. All those things can happen. But all these players are driving, and a few of them have problems, but the overwhelming majority do just fine. It's really not that big of a deal. And I I look at this much the same way. Do you see, too, like, so I, I go back, I love recruiting, like just the idea of recruiting and because we do it in grad school all the time for our grad students, right? Like we have to recruit hard and do certain intentional things. Is there a world in which, I mean, I love your opportunity framing where schools look at this opportunity. Hey, if we establish a mentoring hub that is around financial literacy and all this, and that's something we offer our recruited players saying, hey, come here, sign a contract with us because we also have this structure in place. We're going to get you in Roth IRA. We're going to get you in IRAs and whatever do you see that being an outcome of this too, where schools are establishing little hubs like that if they aren't already doing it? They are already doing it. Yeah. And, you know, when you think, it's a great question, Kevin, when you think about the resources that these institutions of higher learning have, you know, when I was in school, they set up an agents panel for us. We had a group of seniors that were going to play professionally and they set up a panel of, of university experts uh, from the law school and the business school that helped us screen agents. And it was fantastic to have those those minds giving you. A, they didn't tell you what to do, 
but they helped you ask yourself the right questions. And that's really what the, these universities have these resources available. And I've, I've never knocked on a door when I was at Duke and afterwards, and I, I'm still there a lot, that, that any person there said, no, they wouldn't give advice or they wouldn't help. And, and I, I think they're all willing to do it. They were restricted from doing it before because of NCAA rules and compliance and all this stuff. And now they can. And and I think it's a it, what you brought up is a tremendous positive in all this. Like like the education that comes from this is fantastic. There, there's not a negative to it. And uh, the, these players are going to be more savvy. They're going to be smarter in how they handle business, and they're going to be able to set themselves up for their next move. One of the things that really benefited me in life was playing. I played three years professionally overseas, and I was able to bank some money that allowed me to do what I wanted to do afterwards with uh, with a cushion. And uh, uh, and look what these players are getting. And if I had had an additional four years of that in college, it would have put me in an even better position. Um, and there are going to be players that make the wrong decisions with their money. But players are learning now that they do a deal with a, with a company that's offering them an IL money. They can either take the money now, they can take equity. Some of them are taking equity in these companies. And, it's, and they're learning about the business. And these businesses want the athletes involved. They want their input. Uh, and, and it's just a tremendous learning experience that they didn't have access to before. And, and I think it's a tremendous positive. It sounds like you might be putting the student and student athlete with that sort of mindset too, right? Like these are educational opportunities. opportunities. <laughs> Shockingly, yeah. And you guys know where student athlete came from. It's just a made up term that the NCAA came up with to, to keep from having to play work uh, to pay workers compensation back in the day. Walter Byers, who was the executive director of the NCAA when I was on that committee, uh, that was his his brainchild. And uh, and they use it all the time to kind of limit the players. But uh, but yeah, that, that's a good point. That really does kind of put the student aspect of it into into student athlete. Jay, you have you have such a rational approach to, to all this stuff. I, I mean, I really respect how how much research and thought you've given to it. Do you chat with the NCAA? Has Charlie Baker reached out to you? Are you on committees and helping through this process? Because it's murky. I mean, I can't imagine being in their position. Are are they reaching out to you, and are you giving them some support? I, I give them support because most of what the NCAA does is good. Um, there are great people there. And that's one of the things I've tried to tread very lightly on is to make whatever criticisms I may have that I voice that they're about policy, not people. You know, the people are great. Not all of them. There's no, there are great people. Uh, not every person in any organization is great, but, but, but by and large are great people. Uh, I've not heard from Charlie Baker yet. I don't expect to. It's not part of his job. Uh, I had some discussions with Mark Emmert, um, and I talked to a lot of NCAA people from time to time, especially the administrators on campuses. Uh, but I've spoken at length with with uh, people that work in the NCAA office over the years, and uh, and they're always great interactions. We may agree on certain things. We may differ. That's fine. I don't I don't have a problem with with differing viewpoints. In fact, I welcome them because they stress test, you know, what I think. And uh, and you know, you can't have a judgment on something without considering the responsible opposing view. Uh, it, it, that would be that would be ludicrous to me. But um, you know, it, to me, like I'm a commentator on this, and uh, I cover it. Uh, so 
you know, I'm, I'm sometimes couched in, as an advocate because I do have a point of view, but largely what I do is, is, is cover this and then, and then comment on it. Um, but it's pretty clear. I have a point of view that I think w- w- there are certain things that are right and not right. So when the NCAA says something I agree with, uh, you know, I, I report everything they say, but when I agree with it, I say, so I say they're right. Um, but when they're wrong, I say they're wrong. And uh, or at least when I think they're wrong and let me let people make their own judgments. You know, we, we've talked in uh, past episodes of this podcast around the PGA Tour structure, right? And and years ago, this is six years of this podcast. Years ago, we were kind of identifying the 501c3 status and how they work around that and how silly the they, they had a little you know acronym PIP as well that that is a way of getting money into the players' pockets. Do you see some commonalities with what the NCAA is dealing with? I mean, the 501c3 stuff. Universities are, are many universities have that status. I believe is it. Uh, would they move faster if they had a live? If they had a competitor, would this stuff get cleaned up quicker? Probably. Um, just like with anything, uh, the the people that are in charge of it and the structure of it that gen, you know generates the revenue. Uh, they're they're most businesses are trying to pay their employees as little as they can. They're trying to make as much as they can and pay as little as they can to to their employees. Um, that that's the nature of things and employees are trying to make as much as they can. Um, that that's the way it should be. Uh, I have zero problem with that. Um, you know, the, the, the PGA tour, and I don't know enough about it to be able to comment intelligently, but you know, I, I, I've been fascinated by the whole live golf PGA tour thing. Um, and, and again, you know, stating that I don't know, I I'm just a casual observer of this, but you know, one of the things I thought right away is, is, Hey, let, let them, if they want to play, if live golfers want to play in any PGA tour event, let them in, you know, let, let live golf, tell them they're exclusive and they can't do it. Why should you ban them? Cause it, it, the tournaments are better when everybody plays in my view as a fan. Uh, and they're going to, I felt from the beginning, they were going to play in all the majors. Like how could, how could each, each major championship, like you can't really call yourself the open championship and then ban certain players from playing in it. Uh, so they're all playing in it and, and then not being able to play in some of these other events. Uh, I'm not sure that makes everything better. I hope this thing gets worked out, but you know, from a fan perspective, it's made it more interesting. Um, you know, having tension and, and players dislike one another uh, on the occasion that that happens, uh, it makes it a little more interesting to watch. So I'm not sure it's necessarily been a bad thing. And we've seen the, the tour make some changes that have been positive for the players and the players are involved more in policy and have opinions. And, uh, you know, now we got a Netflix thing that I've been watching like crazy and have loved it. Um, and I love like when you were talking before, I think Matt about, uh, uh when a player had Rory had his, his earphones in and was talking in between shots. I love that. And, you know, the more open these, yeah. these sports are to fan interest, the better it is. And the players can handle it. You know, they, they, they're fully capable of saying no. And if they, if it's required, they're probably getting paid for it, which is a good thing too. That's, that's so I'm, I'm right with you on that. It makes it more entertaining for the fan and all boats rise. You know, it's only going to be good. And Tiger can say no. I'm sure they asked Tiger if he'd do it. And I'm sure yeah. Tiger said no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, and all these different events that are coming, um, I, I, I enjoy it. I, there, there is a part of me though, that would be interested in, 
in you know some of these events that are uh, you know going toward the top players. You know, what about the guys near the bottom? I mean, is there a collective will on the part of all the players to make sure that everybody's taken care of to a certain level? Like in in some of the major sports, whether basketball specifically, you know, they have a minimum salary. And uh, it's hard to get a PGA Tour card. And you'd want these guys to be able to compete without having to worry about you know, how much is my hotel room costing and can I afford to do this or afford to do that? I get it where the top guys are flying around in private planes and all that. And the other guys have to drive to different events and it's more difficult, but you, you do want a baseline where everybody's taken care of to a certain extent, because it is so difficult. You know, I don't know how many players are in the NBA, but it's a hell of a lot more than make the PGA tour. I mean, that's an exclusive group. Was 125 players get a tour card or 150, whatever it is. That's not very many in the grand scheme of things. And uh, that's a pretty exclusive club. And there's enough money out there where everybody can be taken care of. And if, if the top guys take a little less to make sure that the others are taken care of, I think that's a positive. I think we're going to have to have Jay back on for our uh, deep dive into the restructuring of the PGA Tour, Kevin. What do you think? I, I completely agree with that. I mean, with his background, there's no one better to speak on it. Uh, Jay, I, we got to work in some, uh, college basketball questions. I, uh, it might be, they might, might all be golf related though. Kind of crossover questions. My first is, have you taken JJ Reddick's money yet? We haven't played golf yet. We talk about playing golf. I've invited him to play two or three times and he's, he's had family obligations. And I was like, dude, you either love golf or you don't like this family stuff. <laughs> You know, the rest of us like leave our families behind at the drop of a hat to go play golf. But but yeah, he's really passionate about playing and loves it. And uh, I play, you know, I play a lot with Shane Battier and and some other, you know, some of my former teammates. Uh, So I want to get Reddick out there, but he'll have to cover up some of those tattoos of my club. I'm not I'm not allowing that. Come on, JJ, right, right? Class up. Yeah, he's obsessed. And you guys will have a logo bingo off, I feel like. I I, watch, I listen to both your podcasts. I like watching both you guys. Yeah, I think, I feel like you guys are dueling with who has the better club logo on the hat. Yeah, I, uh, I've i got a, uh, a golf merchandise problem. Um, my wife kind of... <laughs> My wife kind of said, all right, enough golf shirts. You have enough golf shirts. So I started buying belts when I play places. And then now I've got way too many. There are not enough waists in, in the city of Charlotte for all the belts I have. And, uh, and the hats are a big deal. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, you buy ball markers and all this stuff. I've got more golf crap than, uh, than any human should have. But I, it, I don't know what it is. Like I would never – I guess I do it a little bit in basketball – when, when you have an experience that you enjoy so much, you want to keep a piece of it. And, and, you know, just, it makes me feel good when I take a ball marker out of my pocket from somewhere I've played. And, and it, it's, it's just really cool. It reminds me of a great experience I had. And, you know, you put a golf shirt on or something and it, and it makes you like, man, it, that, that was a great day. What a great trip. Uh, I don't, I, I, I don't feel that way about, about any other thing. Um, so I, I have to be careful. Like sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll have dueling logos, you know, I'll get to the, get to the course and I'm wearing this shirt and that belt and, uh, and this hat and, uh, my friends give me a hard time about it, but I'll, I'll get over it. I don't, I don't worry about it too much. That's right. You do you. I'm, I'm laughing Jay, because the professor here had a very serious merchandise addiction that we had, to, we were talking rehab. There was almost an intervention. It's like, Kevin, you cannot buy another belt. Your, your, your wife needs a vacation. Stop it. 
Every every year she implements a no blank rule. So like based on the previous year, what did I buy a lot of? And she's like, this year you cannot buy another coffee mug or another coin collector or whatever it is. She just she lays down the rule, and then I figure out a new a new item of the year, and that's what I, that's what I go with. Well, my wife, my wife got me really good one time. We were at a we were at a party, kind of one of these summertime parties where all the men at the party wore golf shirts and and all logo golf shirts. And, you know, uh, the women were just beautiful, wearing sundresses and uh, dressed to the nines. And, uh, and my wife said to me one time, she says, you know, we were over there talking, all the women were over there talking. We're really impressed that this guy just played Cypress and this guy just played Shinnecock and this guy just played Pine Valley. And she said, you know, you guys are all dressing for each other. If you really want to get laid, you ought to dress for us. And I was like, <laughs> I was like that's a good point. <laughs> that's, that's right. And yet I'm guessing nothing has changed, even though it was an excellent point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All yeah, right. now we're seeing where the priorities are. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it shifts over time. It does. It really shifts. All right, golf basketball question. You got to pick one guy to be your four-ball two-on-two partner. So you're going to have a go- golf competition followed by a basketball two-on-two match. Oh, who, so who, it's got to be. Yeah, they got to they gotta be able to do both. Who, Love who that, you got? Professor. Uh, either Steph Curry or Ray Allen. I, uh, Ray Allen, uh, his son, his son, Ray, uh, was at my basketball camp a couple years and Ray had called one time about saying, Hey, you know, you think you, I, I could play golf while, after I dropped my son off? And I said, yeah, you know, uh, I can't play with you cause I'm working, but I'll put you out at Charlotte country club. And he played with one of our pros. Who's a stick. Our pro shot 63 that day, but Ray drove the first green. It's no. uh, 300, 365 yards. There's a little downhill element, but he drove the first green. And uh, and they called me and said, who did you stick us with? Like Ray Allen said, <laughs> he can play. Um, yeah, so so I would I would take Ray or, or Steph. Who's got the better three-point shot? Because those are my two favorite strokes in the game, I mean, of recent history. Who, who Whose shot are you taking from those two strokes? Probably, that's a good question. Um, it's a hard. That's a hard answer. I would. Yeah. I would probably take um, take Steph in that uh, because he's probably his range is probably actually a little bit deeper than yeah. Ray's. But uh, Ray's footwork and his uh, uh, his stroke and all that. That's a that's a hard one. Uh, that's like who do you you know who who's got the sweeter swing like a better tempo Fred Couples or Ernie Els. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a tough one. Ray's. I was always obsessed with Ray Allen's release point, how high it was. It's like he could have a six foot five guy on him in his, in his jaw and still just rise up over him and release from that high point. There's nothing anyone could do about it. I always think of the finals three that he made in those last seconds to get the heat into overtime against the Spurs and guy in his mug just rose up and just let it go. I'm blown away with Ray Allen about how analytical he is. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you, you talk about the golf swing with him, and he's got all these different things. I'm like, how do you draw the club back? Like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm baffled already. Uh, I, I can't have that many swing thoughts. Uh, I've got to keep it to one or two things just to draw the club back. But, but yeah, he's very analytical, and but he's athletic and smart enough that he can execute on it. Which is, uh, those are two different things. Well, Jay, we want to be respectful of your time. Thank you for for spending this morning with us. Uh, very insightful, very enjoyable. I got one last college question because I know you're buddies with a lot of college coaches. If an 18-year-old Jay Billis is coming in to NCAA this year, 
what coach does he want to play for? Wow. Um, I would, I, I would love to, you know, I'll take Duke out of it cause I've already done that. I'd love to play for John Shire, but I would probably take Tom Izzo at Michigan state. He would hate me. Uh, he'd be <laughs> screaming at me all the time to grab rebounds and be tougher. But, uh, I think I would really connect with them. I connect with them off the floor. He's a, he's, I don't, I don't know a better guy than him, but he's one of those guys I would have loved to have played for. That is a perfect way to sign us off because the producer of this podcast, the co-founder of new club, he is a Michigan state grad. Tom Izzo like hangs above his, his bed at home. I, that's perfect. You just made him very happy, Jay. Well, I got to make somebody happy. <laughs> well, thanks again, Jay. Really appreciate it. Big J Billis. Kevin, what a guy. This is why we do this. I got to say, the last two weeks, I'm going to give my buddy Sean Martin another shout out on top of this. And Jay, I don't know. I think I've, I've maxed out. Might just step uh, yeah, down. Dude, I might step I mean, down as co host. You're and setting just the bar like, way too high. Like those, the two conversations just, I, I'm struggling to work after these podcasts because then my mind's just what we talked about, all the pieces of it. And then the rest of the day, I'm thinking it's what? 10, 15 here, my time AM, I am not getting any schoolwork done today because I'm going to be thinking about everything Jay brought up. So thoughtful, so articulate, so well researched, like really thinks, like you said, rationally and critically about uh, every idea in the ballpark of his topics. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, such a true analyst that loves to to think, isn't afraid to be wrong, isn't afraid to express his opinion, uh, loves when people disagree with him, as he said. You know, I've never seen someone handle uh, a disagreement so well as a, as a, a, you know, opportunity to kind of, as he said, stress test his ideas. I was just, uh, blown away. What was like, a something that is that your takeaway from the conversation with Jay? Yeah. Problem solver. Like he looks at life. And I think this is something I've tried to really embrace this year, uh, intentionally as just problem solving, right? Like, yeah, any decision, especially around a major event, idea, whatever, is going to create problems. Because if you're not, if you're doing something important, you're going to create problems with every decision you make and every course of action you make. So your only solution to that is to just be a problem solver. Just think, yeah, I'll solve the problems that come up as they come up. And I want to give his, his book, Toughness, a shout out on that. Um, mm. It was right behind him, if anybody sees any video from this podcast, but he, he authored a book called Toughness that he, you know, learned lessons through Coach K and other aspects of life of... Uh, of how important toughness is. And I think problem solving is a form of toughness. Toughness doesn't have to be masculine, like, oh, I'm going to beat someone up or whatever. No, toughness is just like, you come across problems in life and the solution to that is to problem solve. Just think like, okay, what can I do that best addresses this problem moving forward rather than not doing something because of problems that will create. And that just resonated through everything you talked about. Yeah, there's going to be problems and we'll figure them out because guess what? We're smart people. Like the human race is a, Smart group of individuals, we can overcome whatever it is. If it's around NIL and capitalism in terms of amateur athletes and starting to pay them versus like, hey, just got to figure out what's going on for dinner tonight. We can figure, <laughs> we can figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my, one of my big takeaways from the conversation with Jay was uh, the idea of accepting all consequences. I, I loved, you know, as you was talking about his golf game, that you, you really have to just uh, accept the miss. That's part of what, and he talked about how difficult that is, but how easy it was for him in basketball, right? And a lot of that came from Coach K of like, hey, you screwed up, on to the next play, 
on to the acceptance and move on. I, I took a lot of that for my own golf game, to be honest with you, of like, man, I do kind of dwell on that rough double a little too long instead of accepting and moving on. And if you, if you accept that as an outcome, even before it playing that hole, you don't tend to dwell on it as much, you know, you laugh it off, you, you move on. So I, I thought there's some real practical uh, things for the golf game. The other thing with anytime we have someone on like Jay, that's just so passionate about the game of golf and coming at it from a different, you know, point of view, uh, not playing a ton of, as a kid and really just going full in on it, you know, and it, as he gets older, I, I just think it reminds me of all the things I love about golf. And I, I think it's a perfect segue to uh, thanking our sponsor, New Club Golf Society, for this this uh, podcast today because it's the best group of passionate golfers around, right? And Jay reminded me of all those things, and, and New Club kind of does the same for me. It reminds me of what are the elements of golf that that really are are true to the experience that bring us all back. And, uh, and I just loved how he broke that down. So thanks to new club. Uh, they are, we are accepting memberships for the 2023 golf season. Uh, there's chapters in Atlanta, Chicago. We got fixtures, annual fixtures all around the country. Sweetens Cove. We just wrapped that up last month. Always a pleasure to be there. Um, and we're headed to the other Rob Collins design in Homer, Nebraska for our summer medal, August 10th and 11th at Landman Golf Club. Uh, registration, by the way, cat, uh, professor, for the Founders Cup, Big Cedar Lodge this fall, that opens in two weeks. So that's going to go quickly. Just a heads up for members that are listening. Check out New Club at newclub.golf and join the club of passionate golfers. Professor? Really great time with you today. Jay Billis, we're going to, I don't know how we go on from here, but we'll find somebody equally as passionate about golf and equally as intelligent as Jay, I hope. Sounds good. Enjoy your week. Enjoy your week.